Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, January 23rd, 2022. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So we have a chief of staff. Okay, let, let's talk about let's talk about the timeline here. Word emerges, I believe, Saturday morning that Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, closest aide to Joe Biden low these many years, is leaving as White House chief of staff. Maybe three, four hours later comes the news that there has been a search of President Biden's house by the FBI. Uh, And then comes the news that Ron Klain is being replaced by Jeffrey. She blinded me with the Zions. His longtime chief COVID aide. Um. A, the guy who was brought in by Obama in 2013 to fix the Obamacare website, uh, worth hundreds of millions of dollars, apparently, and he is going to be the new White House chief of staff. The question that we have to ask to begin with is, is there a connection between Ron Klain saying, uh, bye, I'm going now, and uh, the it's not wasn't a raid, right? So it was a it was a search done with Biden's or, you know, it was a cooperative search. Um, Somehow the sequence of events seems, it seems unlikely that you would choose to announce that you were leaving on the morning that of the, of this search uh, because you would want to put some distance between the two. Now you could also say that he wanted to announce that he was leaving before the search so that people wouldn't say that he was leaving after the search but maybe that's a distinction without a difference. So this is now just wild, rampant speculation. Well, but that the, he maybe he did want to time his search for a particular moment, you know, post the uh, post midterms, et cetera, et cetera. But then the documents came unraveled. He waited, but not realizing or perhaps not knowing that there would continue to be more documents that kept emerging. And he probably thinks I better go now because who knows what's going to happen in a week. It does. The, the timing does seem um fortuitous for for Ron Klain, but we should note that this job, White House Chief of Staff, has has a notoriously high burnout rate. It's a very difficult job. Um, I think particularly in this administration, it's probably a a very difficult job. And uh, he has served, you know, two years is a very long time. It's like dog years, you know, in this job in particular. So it's not an unusually short time like Brent's previous was with Trump. You know, it's it's not the longest, but it's not the shortest. And it's it's not an easy job. So. Right. I don't, I don't know if uh, if it's related to this particular search or not, but I mean, there's certainly the possibility that he's leaving in part because the White House's posture in general in response to the classified documents issue needs a shakeup and has fallen flat. It's possible he could also be leaving to run the reelection campaign. I mean, right. we don't really know. Again, we don't know why he's leaving, and he's not sharing why he's leaving. And it, it is remarkable, on the well, one hand, how little this White House leaks about these things. And then, on the other hand, how um, un- incurious the White House press corps is 
about stuff like this. Like if I were if I were the Washington editor of the New York Times or the you know or the editor of the Washington Post, uh, I would be enraged at my White House staff that they didn't have an inkling that Klain was on the way out. And I think they don't have an inkling because they are not, they don't, they are, they have some kind of implicit view of their jobs as being defensive of Biden in the sense that anything that weakens him may strengthen Trump. And that's what their main duty in life is to do whatever they can to prevent Trump from coming back in 2024. Well, I mean, just to throw a lot of water on all the speculation going on here. I mean, this was the inkling, right? There has been no announcement. This is a leak. And no, no, it was a leak by by by, clearly, clearly. But that's not we've been calling it an announcement. It's not an announcement. This is first word. And the first word comes from the from the White House. Now, it's not sources close to that was uncovered despite the interests of obviously it was planted. But it was not an announcement. It was a leak. And isn't the simplest explanation for departing the White House now is that the fun part of Joe Biden's presidency is over as a result of the 2022 midterms. Yeah, but you might be defensive. You might say, look, we have a well-oiled machine working here to the extent that that is even humanly possible. We got a lot done in 2022. No one thought that we would get done. You know, I'm proud of what we've accomplished and I'll stay as long as you need me. Now, we don't know. We don't know who wants what where. That's why I said that it's it's possible that he's going to be chief of staff in another way. When you go when you run the presidential reelect, you effectively become a different kind of chief of staff. You're not making policy inside the White House and you're running a different organization, but every bit everything that the president does as he's running for reelection is a political act that you are going to have to defend surrogates are going to have to defend their press spokesman is going to have to defend outside the white house. And so, you know, he may just be being repurposed. I just, who knows? I don't know. Um, And this is who he is. He is Biden's guy. That who's who Ron Klain is. Um, And it's weird to stop being his guy all of a sudden. But I want to go back to this question of he gets the luxury of being able to to pick the time and place of his choosing to say that he's leaving the White House. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the leaks and the way the White House, the White House press corps under Biden has acted. You hear, oh, my God, they're so efficient. It's amazing they don't leak or like the Obama White House also said was said not to leak very much. Well, you know what? Maybe they don't leak very much because there's no incentive to leak because the reporters who are covering you are married to people, uh, you know, in the media. And the idea is you don't want to out them or, uh, you know, they're all they're all one big happy family and uh, you don't share secrets outside of the family. Uh, that is. Was certainly not true of the Clinton administration. In the 90s, which was a sieve and was a was a nightmarish war of all against all. But it was true of the Obama administration, and it appears to be true of the Biden administration that the that the White House the White Houses are not porous. And uh and we give all the credit to the people on the inside 
and don't really imagine that maybe the story is that the people on the outside don't know how or not do are being negligent in doing their jobs. Well, I it, it's a good point, and it just it makes you realize that I mean a, a good exercise, and I think conservatives tend to do this just you know uh, automatically if you're used to a mainstream media that tends to be much more hostile and critical of people on the right versus those on the left because they themselves are on the left. I mean, imagine the headlines if this were Trump and one of his sons, both under federal investigation. What would the constant narrative be in the news? What would the daily sort of chat on on cable news be about the corruption of a family? Right. So there isn't. And, and, you know, again, it would be unfair to speculate because these investigations are ongoing and we shouldn't do that about the Bidens either. But the way all of this is framed, the fact that it was kept under wraps and the only it, it seems like the only reason it, it, that they had to start addressing it from the administration's perspective was the CBS News finally broke the story. I mean, this this is a long time in political news and, and you don't keep things under wraps that way unless there's some incentive to do so. So I, I do feel like they haven't done their job. But as we've long said, that doesn't actually help the Democrats. It doesn't help Biden. They need critical feedback in order to to better understand where the public is coming from on a lot of these issues. And I think, again, talked about this last week, He the Biden administration seems very high handed and unconcerned and and thinks that this idea some of which it seems to have been, you know, uh, thought up by Anita Dunn as strategy is to be like, I'm above it. I'm just not at all like Trump. I am I'm completely cooperating, cooperating. But the more that's on that's revealed, the more we realize he's he's not exactly cooperating because he wants to and out of the goodness of his heart. He's doing it to avoid the optics of actually being served with a warrant or a raid and all the stuff that, that Trump did. He's avoiding, but he can't entirely avoid this process. So he's going along with it because that looks better. But the rhetoric doesn't seem to acknowledge that. I want to make a point we made on Friday that um, we've been told Biden said, you know, I, I have no regrets and uh, I'm told there's no there. Uh, there's no there there. And Christine, as you said, from what we can tell, the lawyers that were that 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 executed the first search of his office at the Biden Penn Chinese Communist Party Center in Washington um that they didn't have security clearance which would mean that when they found the documents in the in the envelope marked personal they couldn't look at them they saw markings at the top of the page shoved them back in the envelope and handed them to the archives here's something from the new york times today quote president biden's lawyers told the justice department in november that they had no reason to believe that copies of official records from his vice presidency had ended up anywhere beyond a think tank in Washington, where several classified documents had been found that month. That assertion, the people said, was based on interviews with former officials who had been involved in the process of packing and shipping such materials. What? So the Biden lawyers find classified information that they didn't know was there. And then they tell the Justice Department, we have no reason to believe that there are documents anywhere else because we called a couple of people who said, no, there are no documents in Delaware. But we should reverse that even more okay. because our, our friend Andy McCarthy at National Review has done a sort of good overview of what we know so far. And one of the things that hasn't come out in a lot of the mainstream reporting, I think it's important to note, and he notes this, he says he, he says when when they found, um, you know, the first batch of documents, they actually reported it to the White House 
And they, which the White House then contacted the archives, not the Justice Department, the National Archives and Record Administration. And what Andy speculates, which is not wild speculation at all when you see it all laid out, is that maybe they were hoping the archives would just, you know, oh, oopsie daisy, we'll take those back and file them and nobody's the wiser. But what in fact triggered having to talk then to justice is that there's an inspector general at the National Archives and Record Administration, and that's a watchdog role, and they notified the Justice Department. It was the IG's office, not the right. Biden White House. So that suggests that the Biden White House, again, far from being Mr. Clean Hands, transparent, good governance, was actively not exactly suppressing because right. they told the archives, but basically doing everything possible to avoid triggering an investigation when they knew that what he had done by taking those documents. And he, by the way, they go back before vice president. They now have seized things that from when he was a senator. This is a big deal, but it was not made to it was not treated like a big deal, even by the Biden White House, which to speak to your earlier point about the media, maybe they they assumed, well, you know, they'll just go along with our explanation. I was very baffled by this time story because I thought this is the sort of like the, the defense was the team just didn't know. Um, a, that's not a good defense. Who cares? Um, and B, well, well, who know? Why would we believe that they didn't know, or they? Did? I mean, it, it's 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 a, a very strange sort of. It, it provided zero insight, as far as I'm concerned. But even justice so is being cagey with the language yeah. of this particular because they waited a long time to do what they should have done. <laughs> they even PBS, they, they got PBS with this language. So the language from the Department of Justice is that they discovered six items containing classified document markings which PBS News took to read, FBI finds six more documents marked classified in search of Biden's home. Nope. No, that is not what they said. No. And it's very clearly worded to be a little tricky because your first inclination is, items. well, they found six documents, but that is not what was said. No, they said they found six items containing classified markings. Right. So Boxes, what could those items be? Dumpsters. What a kind laptop? of items are we talking about? Corvettes here? full of item. The item is the a Corvette. A laptop? could be an item. An item is something that you register on an evidence list. I mean, fine. So a piece of paper could be an item. But if it was six pieces of paper, they would have said they found six pieces of paper with classified markings, which doesn't sound bad. You have to agree. Look, we went through the whole house. We found six pieces of paper. That's not a bad spin. Right. I mean, it's not 300 pieces of paper. Right. Which is, I think, what they found at Mar-a-Lago. So, so they found six pieces of paper. They didn't say pieces of paper. So we don't know how many documents are contained within the six items. That's, I think, the point that, Noah, you're trying to make. Yeah. It could be a banker's box. Could be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Wall Street Journal speculates, I think, and fairly, or I, uh, both the Wall Street Journal and the my friends of the New York Post speculate that the reason that there are documents from the time that he was Senate, he was in the Senate, is that he took them on the train with him from his Senate office when he was on. Was he on intelligence? I mean, he was on, you know, he was on various, you know, he was probably on every committee in the history of the Senate in his 275 years in the Senate. So, um, but why would he have them in Wilmington? Like, it doesn't make sense that he would even have them in Wilmington. There is a protocol for the handling of classified information outside of 
what are called skiffs that is uh, sensitive compartmentalized information locations which are like secure compartmentalized information facility thank you i've actually Especially been, for i've actually been yeah. in one i've actually been in one once in my life so i i uh, just couldn't remember the term but uh, the point is that you if if someone comes to your office with classified information uh, they stand there while you read it and then you hand it back to them and they don't leave the room until you hand it back to them. Because again, can I point out from the historian's perspective, yeah. if he kept things for which there was only one copy of a classified document, that right. means it's not in the archives where it belonged, perhaps as long as 20 years ago when he was a senator. That's bad. That's I mean, besides right. being a well, we can event. assume. Right. So we don't know how many copies they make of classified documents. Theoretically, right. there shouldn't be very many. If Exactly. Yeah. Right. And okay, also, you can turn any room into a tea skiff with just somebody comes by and does a benediction over the room and it somehow. Well, that's what I'm saying. But someone. Yeah. The skiff is made temporary by the presence of the official who delivers the information and then takes it back from you. I told the story last week about being in Scooter Libby's office in 2003 when he had to step out of the office and he made his secretary stand next to me so that I would not look on his desk. He's an old friend of mine, but it's like you're not looking. I mean, he didn't, nothing was said. But that that was that's conventional protocol for, you know, for sort of the complex social interactions involving being in a place where there might be classified information that couldn't be seen by others. I mean, I think Abe pointed out uh, over our text chain this weekend that the other thing that could be happening here is that we're just, the shades are falling from everybody's eyes about classified information here. Yeah, I mean, that's... That... Go ahead. Yeah, but what, what, what I've been wondering now is, well... Maybe like every president has a few classified mementos from their time in the in the office, and and now Trump killed all the fun, or going after Trump killed all the fun. You know, yeah, like, they're all right? rummaging through their tchotchkes yeah. right. from their foreign trips. Yeah, like, damn like, it. You know, <laughs> maybe Obama's smoking up a storm right now, nervous, and yeah, Bill Clinton no, right. worried about yeah. his stash of of papers, yeah. like you know, and Bush, whomever, yeah. like you know, yeah. Well, it's like the battlefield. It's like, it's like people. Yeah, it's like people who you know came home from from the battlefield with you know a sword and the you know the gold tooth of of a Japanese soldier they killed on a deserted island or what you know like right. that the the mementos that are the, by definition you know like more valuable than any other because literally no other person on the planet Earth could have them. You can see why that would be an allure. And, I mean, one of the things Trump said, it's, you know, crazy, yeah. but, but he said, look, I, I I took the folders, not the documents, because the folders look cool. They say classified on them or, or, or whatever. Yeah, right. But there's something, I mean, maybe so it's like a secret White House recording system where it's just always been sort of part of the business. And now that we know about it. It's got to go. No, no, right. That's right. Yeah. So it was like, oh, my God, Nixon recorded people. And it's like, oh, please. What are you kidding <laughs> right. me? Do you know what Johnson did? Johnson had wiretaps on everybody in America. You know, Bill Moyers wiretapped every. Oh, the sainted Bill Moyers, like wiretapped everybody in America. So I don't know. It is. There is something funny about 
yeah, the um, you know, the Captain Renowing of uh of 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 all of America. It's like I'm shocked to find classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. You know, but th- but this actually the the, the long term unfortunate thing about this is that it plays into an argument that is both cynical and institution destroying, and also was very persuasive for Trump, which he will continue to make, which is that everybody does this; it's all corrupt. The whole system is corrupt, and I don't like that argument because a I don't believe it's true, and b I think it's bad for our for our political culture to have that be the the standby. But he will now make that argument again with a lot more evidence that in fact. You know, certain people are persecuted when others are let go, but everybody's doing the same behavior. It just matters who has power and who uses it. Look, um, everybody may not do it, but yeah, if at least one of his predecessors has done it, then everybody at his level did it. Or at least two people at his level, you know, did it. Well, and Biden wasn't even at his level. He was a senator and a vice president, not a president. Right. At yeah. The time. So so that argument has some purchase it's not even an argument it's like a it's a truism okay let me let me move on from this uh because we we brought up trump to ask whether um, i'm sorry that was my fault (laughs) no it's fine uh we now have two polls in the last two weeks that show trump after several months of running behind ron desantis in in matchups um now firmly in the lead uh when republican voters are asked whom they want as the nominee in 2024 i think uh was it morning consult had him leading by 17 harvard harris now has him leading by 14 this is with a whole bunch of other people in the race and so you now have to ask if it were if it had been the classified information story of the summer that began Trump's slide and played a material role in the Democratic, uh, the halting of the Democratic, of the wave against the Democrats in November. Has the emergence of the Biden story reversed things for Trump among Republicans in the last couple of weeks? It's like... Oh, all right. They almost had me with the, all right, I can't take it anymore. But now Biden's just the same thing. So the hell with them. No, what do you think? I mean, perhaps <laughs> it's really too early to put a whole lot of stock in, in polling. Uh, no, and it must be. Noted. I don't know. We put some stock in the polling with yeah, DeSantis well. in the lead. So you, you know, oh. you, you. What sauce for the goose? Well, what we were saying, at least what I was saying, is yeah. that none of this looks especially comforting if you're on Team DeSantis, because you're talking about, for example, a Quinnipiac poll that came out not too long ago, found a head-to-head race between DeSantis and last week, two weeks ago, maybe, head-to-head race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis coming down to a two-point lead for Ron DeSantis, 45-43. Now, none of that is especially comforting, and there's no such thing as a two-way race in this primary, and there's no such thing as a national primary. So what value does that give you except to as a snapshot of where the Republican electorate is? And it must be said, if you're looking at all this polling, very preliminary polling and Donald Trump's margin has been declining and continues to decline, even in this Harvard Harris poll. Um, he's stable at 48, but his lead over his nearest competitor, Ron DeSantis, has been declining. Now, all that being said, he's still the front runner. 
He's still the front runner by a significant degree. He will be the front runner in the event that no nothing you know shakes up this race in Iowa and New Hampshire, which defines sets the tone for future races. So I don't think you have to you can say anything other than Republican voters still want Donald Trump to be the head of their party, titular and otherwise. And this comes, as you say, amid Donald Trump himself doing absolutely nothing but stepping on every available rake, falling on his face on a fairly routine basis and embarrassing Republicans if they retain the capacity for embarrassment. Okay, so which I, I think I, they no that's longer That's an important do. caveat right there. <laughs> I think but, they no longer do, and I mean that very seriously, is that there is nothing that can embarrass them. They turn embarrassment or the conditions that should traditionally result in some sense of mortification among people who retain that capacity and channel it into extroversion, into outrage and frustration and resolve, resolve to show you that they cannot be shamed. Yeah. Shamelessness has become a political okay, virtue for too many on the right. I'm I'm for a, a very rare moment for me. I'm going to say that I don't think you're being fair to Trump or describing where Trump is at this moment properly because i would say that trump is making no news and has made no news since september october yeah he releases a true social yeah he wants to go back on twitter yeah he was at diamond's funeral and said he didn't know silk but he I'm is thinking not of the kanye dinner in particular okay but okay so i'm saying yeah but that was months and months ago and he is sitting there with biden making all the scandal news and he is not being he's not going on Hannity every night to say Biden, 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 Biden. He is just sitting there. Remember that the last 10 days of the 2016 election, when Comey had to reopen the investigation into Hillary, Trump went dark. He stopped making news. He was prevailed upon by people to say, let Hillary, let this play out. They're going after her. We're just going to stand on the sidelines and wait and see what happens. That was, I'm sure, very hard for him to do. Something like that is happening right now. And I'm saying the Trump is now one of those people who's in the position where the less that he says and the more that a story plays out that does not involve him, but clearly is entirely relating to the very thing that caused his decline in 2022, the more he has some impressive, he, the more he reminds people that he was treated unfairly and they like him and it's all a plot by the mainstream media to get him and the deep state and the liberals. And they kind of revert back to the mean or the norm for them, which I guess is what partially what you're talking about like their view of him has not changed it's more like oh this is never going to work again but now it's like well maybe it will like i mean who's going to vote for biden if he's doing all this terrible stuff yeah i i mean in answer to your question john if if the biden story has taken some disillusioned former trumpers and 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 brought them back into the fold i think it's definitely a yes uh when when i first heard the first report of the first Biden classified documents, I said, oh, this is this is the first good piece of good news for Trump in a, in a long, long time. 
Um, and it's it's part of why uh, Democrats and liberals should be furious with Biden about this. Um, and instead of like, you know, trying to say, look how good he's being and upstand, they they should w- want to like reconsider like, yeah, he's there's something off about this guy and this presidency. And um, we were in this incredible position for a little while here. And 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 look at what this bumbling guy went and did to us. OK, so you're yeah. I'm going to do this, whether you like it or not. But this is a you lot can like do whatever the, you want. This is a lot like the debt ceiling. I'm bringing oh, the debt ceiling into this. Go Noah. Go Noah. Noah has been waiting for a week <laughs> it, to Noah. talk about the debt ceiling. Go Noah. Take it away. Uh, well, I mean, I, I'm only in a tangential way, but just because I've been sitting on these notes for two days, listeners, in the eager anticipation of talking about the five, debt ceiling. Five, four, five days, actually, because we didn't, we didn't, of course, podcast over the weekend. So we have been ahead. muzzling our colleagues. Yes. So. But this is something that, um, Liam Donovan has been observing in regards to the debt ceiling. On, and, and I think it dovetails with this conversation around Donald Trump is that Republicans and Republican voters have this entire alternate reality and mythos around how things went for them in 2011. The standoff over the debt ceiling in 2011, which gave us the super committee, which gave us the Simpson Bowles Commission, which did nothing. And the super committee did nothing. And then ultimately it, it resulted in sequester, which is the dumbest possible way to cut spending designed to be really dumb and painful and something that nobody would actually want, but it ended up happening anyway because there's an impasse in Washington. And the the mythos for Republicans of 2011 is they stared down uh, the Senate, Senate Democrats, they stared down the White House and won, got concessions, similar to the 2013 government shutdown around stopping Obamacare from being implemented somehow magically was a scam. It was a fundraising opportunity, but they have a different conception about how that worked out. Do they have a different conception about how 2020 worked out? They certainly have a different conception about how 2016 worked out, but obviously there's, you know, the stolen election narrative, what have you, even if you're not beholden to that, was it really so, so bad politically to have Donald Trump at the top of the ticket? I mean, you can retro, actively convince yourself retro retro condition yourself to believe maybe not and we've all been fed you know your 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 recollection of this is tainted by mainstream media narratives that are dubious prominent provenance and you know maybe we've all convinced ourselves of a reality that isn't true maybe that is the thinking on the right at least for 48 percent of the right According okay. to Harvard Harris poll that supports Donald Trump's own that is a that is a very important analysis, and it brings something up because suddenly there is now fighting in the second tier of Republican uh, potential candidates in 2024. Nikki Haley fighting with Mike Pompeo. Mike Pompeo saying Nikki Haley was plotting with Jared and Ivanka to oust Mike Pence and become the running mate. Nikki Haley saying, "Bless his heart, he's a liar." And so we have these, both of them who are, you know, polling in the single digits or less. I don't even, I don't even know if Pompeo was showing up in the polls going at each other. Uh, And the thing is that if Trump runs, which he is right, he already announced he was running and isn't indicted and convicted. So he can't be the candidate. um, Somebody is going to have to make the case that he cannot be the nominee in 2024 in the Republican Party. And that person has to be the one who takes Trump down. It will have to be DeSantis or Nikki Haley or something like that because 
if we go on this way, Trump, this is, I think, what this polling shows, Trump will, in the absence of a stalwart effort to say he cannot be the nominee in 2024, Trump will win, second tier will turn on each other, they'll attack they'll they'll attack each other in an effort to make news and they will leave trump alone at the top and he will in the winner take all environment of the republican party's nominating process which makes it as close to being a national primary as you can have if you have these states being mostly winner take all with the delegates the national atmosphere matters a lot more than it does state by state because you can't like you can't chip away at the numbers he'll win and people better be you know the people who are going to run better be ready to understand that this argument which was the fantasy of Jeb and Cruz and everybody else that they could somehow not take on Trump but but win Trump and then therefore take Trump's voters when Trump ma magically vanished from the scene was indeed a horrible fantasy. And the only person who actually took him on head to head was Marco Rubio after Rubio basically had left the after Rubio had been humiliated in New Hampshire and basically was no longer a viable candidate for for the nomination. So he did it way too late, and nobody else really did it, except for John Kasich, you know, who basically isn't even a Republican anymore. And that's, people are going to have to grapple with this. Like, the DeSantis team is going to have to grapple with this. They can't do, I'm just going to say what I've done in Florida. No. You've already gotten everything you're going to get from being a really good governor of Florida. By the way, that's a really good argument to make in the general election after you secure the nomination to get independents to come to your side. How you did as governor of Florida, what you've done as a as a as a public official. And the last I saw, he's still okay in the general. I mean, against Trump. Right. Yeah, no, he's a, yeah. he's okay in the general against Biden. I think he wins right. against yeah. Biden. But um, there, I mean. But yeah. the one, the, but the one thing, I mean, the scandal fatigue thing is actually real, and the grievance fatigue with Trump which we had up until recently was real, even among some, except for the true diehards. I mean, I, I the governance arguments, DeSantis wins hands down, but the I'm not going to bring a lot of legal trouble and hassle and, you know, uh, conspiracy theorizing to this. Uh, I'm just going to get the job done, which we need. And he can do that while not outright condemning Trump. Now, I don't the, agree. You, you don't think so? I really I mean, he can condemn him for January so. 6th, but he can basically Everything say... I'm yeah. Trump without the crazy, which was always can, his appeal. Yeah, but he's got to say Trump. He has to go for Trump's jugular. Right. Well, he can Trump, do that. How does he say I'm Trump without the crazy without saying I'm Trump without Trump. the crazy? Yeah, he's got to say Trump is crazy. Trump will, we will, we are heading down the road toward European socialism. Trump's yeah. nomination in 2024 will. Well, hasten will, that. Yeah. yeah. Hasten Everything that you don't want will get will be accelerated. But Republican voters are not going to believe the general election argument that that Donald Trump can't win a general election. I'm not sure that's true. 
I mean, that's that. Well, they will key. say the following. They say that and said that in 2016 and he won. They said that in 2020 yeah. and it was but that's, a, it was a disastrous, you know, stolen election. They OK, don't, but they don't have a same shared set but, of facts. OK, but if that's the case, then there's nothing you can say. And then Trump will have to, you know, will have to like trip on his own shoelaces and ruin himself. Or pick and, Kanye as his running mate. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just I think that there is more. The party, the Republican Party has not is not ready to go into permanent minority status forever. And if you have Trump standing there still talking about 2020 and DeSantis saying, I'm aiming for 20, I'm aiming to make this country a better place in 2032. But he can't do that without saying you cannot pick this guy. This guy is a disaster who is going to lead us into destruction. And the temptation to not to do that is very powerful on part of Republicans. They're scared of Trump. They think it's not acceptable. They're, they, they believe what you believe, Noah, which is that the voters will be with him. But if that's the case, then don't run. Seriously, don't run. You're not going to win. You're not going to beat him without beating him. This is a race in which you have to, it's like, this is going to be three yards in a cloud of dust, a really ugly campaign, really violent in, in its rhetoric and in, and its nastiness and all of that. And you're going to have to be there, you know, on the line in this, in the dirt because Trump will stop at nothing. And he's got, people who like that you know there are a lot of people who don't like it but they're not the ones who are probably going to make the decision in the primary look my the piece i published in commentary in december uh the geopocalypse speculates that one way to save the republican party is to have the largest mass of republican voters not the base not the trump trumpians and not the grassroots base but the voters who actually you know the the 40 million or so Republican voters who aren't in that nest or whatever to politicize them and radicalize them in some fashion to be the deciding factor. Well, the only way, if I'm right about that, the only way you can do that is to say, vote for me and not him. You have to vote for me. He's everything is going to be terrible. If you vote aren't for him, you tired of losing. That's that's the line. And but then you have only, to say yeah. that you lost. You, well, yeah, really well, you have to call the out the election. Lost. Look the big around lie. you. Yes. We've lost. Yes. We're, we yeah. just keep losing. But this is this is a real fundamental problem with getting Republican voters to accept that. They no, but lost. If they, they, say if they can. Point to the White House. Trump's not if, in it. Like, if they he can, lost. If they can't say he lost and therefore he shouldn't be the nominee again because you already he, lost one. Not just he, but a particular disposition. I know, but, but the particular disposition. disposition. But this is all part and parcel. I mean, you can't yeah. you can't take one in isolation. No, but if you but, can't but, but, do it, yeah, go ahead. DeSantis can say it because DeSantis won. He can say, look, that's right. This is you can win as a as a as a Republican, as yeah, a real conservative who's fighting the culture war, you can win. I have won spectacular blue districts red. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can say right. I won by half I'm a, point a winner. In 2018. He's a loser. I won by <laughs> half a point in 2018. 
in a purple state, and I won by 19 points in 2022 in a in a deep red state. Right. Who He's did like, that? I, he, I did. I that. turned Florida red. I can turn the country yeah. back to red. Like right. that's a, wrote, I wrote that's a, a good message for the, for the website a couple of months ago about mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to get spending to make spending into a culture war issue. Yeah. Um, because that's the only thing that enlivens the base right now. And also, obviously, we're in the middle of the Republicans sort of rediscovering their uh, fiscal rectitude. And it doesn't seem too hard. Like, all you got to do is look at the omnibus and see how much is devoted to these weird, esoteric, parochial, democratic uh, fixations. Hun millions of dollars, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. That doesn't seem hard to make that into a, you can marry these two arguments. It doesn't always, Ron DeSantis has a tendency to jump at every shiny object that captures the Twitter trends. And it doesn't, you don't have to, you can focus and narrow a little bit onto something that actually complements an ideological, a, a, a thorough ideological vision um, that, that uh, you know, yeah. contrasts with how Democrats would have governed this country. Um, all these, all these messages don't seem difficult to craft, but we haven't seen Tallahassee or Ron DeSantis really craft a coherent narrative that marries a vision, a right. traditional fiscal fiscal conservative vision with the culture warring that Republican voters want to see. He doesn't have to yet. He's not a candidate yet. He can do that. that I think that's important. To... It is It is still True. January of 2023. The first primary isn't for a year. And and there's, there is actually plenty of time. And because the donor class is so excited by him, his ability to raise the kind of money he would need to raise to do what I'm saying is very real. Like that is a very real thing and he can do it very fast and get his sea legs up. But I'm saying that the temptation in the party is going to be exactly the same temptation that was the case in the fall and winter of 2015, 2016, when people said, I want to surgically peel away Trump from the people who are going to vote for Trump. By doing this cork, I'm not going to attack him, but I will be there saying the things that they like to hear so that when Trump blows himself up, I'm there to get the fallout. And then Trump didn't blow himself up and they were all ruined. And when I say ruined, I mean, you know, you can never say never in American politics. But does anyone sitting here really think that there is anyone who was in the race in 2016 who will ever be president of the United States? Ted Cruz, John Kasich, Marco Rubio. Do we, looking at them in the wake, uh, in the Trump era, do we say, boy, you know, it's not like he'll be back. That guy, okay, ran too early. Biden ran in 2018 and, and in 1988 and then, and and actually I think in 1996, and then he ran again in 2020 and won, or he ran in 2008, whatever the hell, whatever the hell he ran. Do we actually look at these guys and say, they're really going to, they really showed their medal back in when they were 42, 43 years old, and they're going to be back. We know they're not coming back. We know that there is a discontinuity here. Why aren't they coming back? Because they didn't do what was necessary, and they 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 chickened out. And who dares wins? And they chickened out, and they they didn't they didn't make it happen. And so who's there, right? There's there's Yunkin, there's DeSantis. I don't even know who else there might be. Um, but you gotta run the race. And the race is against Trump. It's not against Biden. It's not against the Democrats. 
the race for the Republican nomination is a race against Donald Trump or the reinstitution of Donald Trump as the as the not just implicit head of the party, but the titular head of the party and the candidate. For, so we'll have this wonderful race between a 78-year-old lunatic and an 82-year-old, you know, senile person, and uh, and the country's secular decline will be so pronounced. Both under federal investigation, we should add. Yes. <laughs> this yes. is great. Great standard bearers for both it's parties. totally great, yeah. Um, Noah, do you want to say anything more about the debt ceiling, aside from your notes? Because I now I feel you brought it up. I was just saying to you, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said we're going to take extraordinary measures to make sure that we can cover our, you know, our debt service. And uh, even though the debt limit is is, you know, will be here at the end of January, but this is something that they say every year. These measures are so extraordinary that they now happen like clockwork every year with regularity, and the debt ceiling isn't uh, isn't breached. When so it's being pushed government. off. When right. there's divided government, okay. <laughs> when there's not divided well, government. No extraordinary measures necessary because debt ceiling just goes up. Republican Democrat doesn't matter. Yeah. Debt ceiling goes okay. up. Okay. Well, there was a divided government in 2019, and the debt ceiling went up because Democrats want the government to function. Uh, it's know. only. But no, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I we're we're at some point going to hit the debt ceiling crisis, but that that moment is not right now. Despite headlines last week that said that it was, that's not actually. No, I think in June we it, it's it's sort of ill defined, but I think we're going to get like the hard fast deadline where we can't make the payments. A lot of it has to do with the economic. A, a lot of it literally has to do with the state of the macro economy. Yeah. If we're growing, tax receipts will be coming in flooding the federal government and you can rejigger and re if the money isn't coming in fat if we hit a recession for example like in the second quarter the debt ceiling will co will come crashing into the debt ceiling faster than we expect and if it doesn't then we'll be in better shape to extend it through the summer i think uh yeah i mean there will be negotiations ongoing which could have their own you know their own force compelling power in the absence of new receipts I and mean, the negotiations are ongoing and that will just become its own thing. What I'm uh, interested in is this whole open amendments process, which was one of these concessions that uh, McCarthy had to make in order to secure his speakership and what that means. Because theoretically, um, Democrats could use it to spike initiatives. They could open up the floor and try to get a couple peel off four or five moderate Republicans and blow up the whole thing with whatever their particular amendment is. It, that's we should, if leadership we should describe... plays ball, which we don't actually know if McCarthy is going to honor his, his, his commitments. I think he will. I don't think he has much choice, but John, you don't think that's necessarily a, a lead pipe cinch. I don't. Well, first of all, we should describe what this is just to, just to make it clear. So um, the Senate, uh, has a has a process of unlimited um, you know unlimited debate and uh, and bill amendment um, and that is one of the di distinctions between the Senate and the House and the House uh, has has had has a very constrained process where each bill the Rules Committee writes the rule under which the bill will be considered and prevents the bill bills from getting gummed up on the house floor through the process of in 
of introducing amendments that people have to vote on on the House floor at the moment that the bill is being considered. And Kevin McCarthy agreed with the House, the people who didn't, you know, agreed uh, in part of his negotiations to get people to let him be speaker, that he was going to open the amendments process. And people said, this is insane for precisely the reason that Noah said, which is that if you open the amendments process, welcome to the amendment that says we should ban the very specific type of gun that was used in the Monterey Park shooting. That's right. And there is um, uh, some precedent for this. I think Democrats threw a gay marriage provision in there at one point in prior negotiations that that blew things up. And it's not just moderate Republicans who could be who could peel off. Think of all the spending provisions that the nationalist right prefers. You know, maybe they throw a guaranteed minimum income in there or child. No, tax no they can do that or any. The whole point is that they want this because they think it's good working order, which is an interesting philosophical debate about whether or not the House, you know, doesn't function as a properly democratic representative body because the leadership has had too much power over over what you can actually vote on fine that's an interesting fight to be having i'm not sure it's an interesting fight to be having mm-hmm. with a five seat majority i mean that's a weird fight to be having with i mean a that's a, and that's the second problem is they don't haven't really done a lot of math ours do have the republicans have leverage they don't have a lot of leverage but they do have some that could secure probably <clears> a concession <throat> in negotiations with the white house but what do they want to achieve? I don't know what they want to achieve. What do they want to achieve? They don't want to touch entitlements. They don't want to touch non-discretionary spending that they like, namely mostly defense spending. But so what do they want to where do they want to cut? And how are they going to get the money that they want? Joe Manchin is talking about Super Committee 2.0, which is hilarious. So they're, but nevertheless, Joe Manchin is talking about Super Committee 2.0. They have people on the other side of the aisle they can work with, but to what end? Well, again, you're talking about, you know, a few moderates like here. Here is the here is the horror for Kevin McCarthy. So the debt ceiling will have to be raised. Debt limit will have to be raised. The debt ceiling will have to be lifted. Um, Kevin McCarthy has put himself in a position where the only way the debt ceiling is going to be lifted is with Democratic votes. He has also agreed to this provision, the reinstitution of what's called the Hastert Doctrine or something like the Hastert Rule, which is that he will not bring anything to the floor that is not supported by a majority of the Republican caucus in the House, which is, what, 112 votes or 111 votes or something now. If they all vote against the debt ceiling, it's going to take five Democrat were five Republican moderate votes to spin off or 10 to spin off and vote for the debt ceiling to be lifted whenever that happens. And then you have the war of all against all in the Republican Party, because the people who are doing that will be doing that because they are responsible, sober people who don't want the country to go into default and they will be destroyed by their colleagues who will run candidates against them and will try to destroy them and do all this terrible stuff to them and like mccarthy will need that to happen you see he because he can't be the speaker country defaults on its debt kevin mccarthy is the speaker that's another way he's not going to be speaker much longer like that is a very easy race in 2024 in a conventional 
district where, you know, Trump won by two or Biden won by two, just to say these lunatics, look at these lunatics. Look what they did. They degraded our credit rating. We're not paying our bills. You have to pay your bills. The U.S. government didn't because the Republicans are so crazy. It's everything he doesn't want. And he's going to have to be saved by Democratic by by Democratic votes and by four or five Republicans who will basically be putting themselves on the potential chopping block. This is nuts what they've done, and this is why people were saying, oh, my God, what was Kevin McCarthy agreeing to when he agreed to all these changes a month ago? But, you know, you do what you have to do at the at that given moment, which was, a cla- of course, Trump's behavior, right, is that he did what you had. He he said whatever it was he had to say to get through the next five minutes. And so did so did uh, so did Kevin McCarthy. But to return to the larger topic here, do you think that Ron DeSantis will do what I am saying? That sooner rather than later, or not in desperation because his campaign is going badly, he will frame his campaign with an understanding that he is running not only to be president because he has a vision of the future and he wants to stop the, you know, wokeness and this and that, and but also because he needs to save the Republican party in the United States from another term of Trump. Will he do that? Or will he only, will he only take that up if things aren't going well? I don't think he's going to frame it as I need to save you all from Trump because that sounds condescending and that's not really his style. Um, I think he has to figure out how to, that's a tough needle to thread, but I, I, I think he's capable of it. He actually, the fact that he is kind of standoffish, personality wise, at least that's how he's been described. You know, he's not a he's not a glad handing feeding off the crowd's attention like like uh, Bill Clinton was, for example, or uh, for that matter, Donald Trump's narcissism feeds off the crowd and the adulation. He doesn't seem to need that, which can be a deficit for some politicians. But I think in this case might actually work to his benefit. He has to make it not personal. I know that sounds strange because with Trump, Trump always wants to make things personal. That's his whole shtick. If he doesn't make it personal, I think he can he can get to that argument um, in a roundabout way. But I think if you're a GOP leader right now, you can't say to the Republican voter, I'm saving you from yourselves, because that's basically what the left okay. tells them every day. Fair enough. He, yeah, he I think. Not, but then he better not run if he can't say you're going to lose with this guy. Oh, that he, he can say. President. I like that. No, he but was, he can say why? that. No, that yeah, would be yeah. pers- oh, that would be personal in two seconds. It's a political argument. It's like, look, keep, it's not, it, look, no, that would be personal. That would be very personal, especially if you're a Republican voter who's internalized the idea that he didn't lose. Yeah, but I, you're not you're not going to win those guys. If Trump runs, the people who it's thought not about the election what, there are a lot of people was. Who, I'm sorry, just just briefly, it's not about convince those people not, may not necessarily be convinced of this argument, but they certainly don't want to be reminded that they've internalized some ideas that are flawed from people who are trying to correct. I mean, that's the same thing as trying to correct. The problem is, is that Republican voters are resistant to the idea that they're wrong. And anybody think, who wants to, and, when, and people who want to, you know, just play gently around the, the margins there are are going to engage in the same thing that happened in 2016, where it was all solipsism. I think he will make a robust anti-Trump case when he has to. I, I So later rather than sooner. I think what he's doing now, which I think is smart, is racking up accomplishments and accomplishments that MAGA folks care about uh, culture war, making culture war moves. He's, you know, he's recently uh, um, 
gone on the warpath against uh, critical race theory in in uh, uh, AP uh, uh, tests or AP classes, yeah. um, things like that. He's 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 making the case for himself now. Um, so, he will, I think. I suspect. I mean, can, I, can I give one? Can I just Trump. give one more example of this? That he's yeah. this is actually quite savvy. Uh, he can he can argue if he's standing there in a primary debate, he can point at Trump and say, you said all this, all these lockdowns during covid, the masks, the, ma- the yeah. mandates, you said all of these were bad, but you did nothing about it. I, right. in my state, challenged your administration because right. I agree it was bad, but I did something about it. So there are well, a lot of those contrasts where Trump was all talk. DeSantis was action. He can make that argument right. on a number of fields there. Look, the argument that we haven't even brought up, which is which is ultimately the most powerful argument. In, in the quick because everybody knows it to be true and non-ideologically is I am 44 years old I am the only person in this race Trump Biden and me I'm 44 they are a combined 162 vote for me because really you want to be run you want to be governed by the head of the Del Boca Vista condo board enough. The boomers are over. Get them off stage. Enter That's Gen not... X. I like that argument. I, I mean, Gen I mean, but we're but a I tiny mean, generation. Ulti- yeah. But I think ultimately it's a, it's, it is, you know, so he'll show he has vigor. He has this, he has that. But I mean, I think he's going to have to make that explicit. Are we going to be ruled by people in their 80s for the rest of our lives? He also served, which the others did. Like he served in the military. Like he's got a better, the resume. No, he's got a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm not, I'm just saying he's, will be 44. Trump will be 79. Biden will be 82. Like he'll, or he'll be 45 or 46 in 2025. Like this is insane. These people should, are not supposed to be running the country. They're too old. You know, we honor their service. Go retire. Sit in a rocking chair and go, you know, and and visit your classified information that you stole. You know, Um I mean, ultimately, that's, you know, that's the I other, just had an idea. Yeah. The old presidents, yeah. we should create like a retirement home that's just a, a massive skiff and they can all just sit there with all their, their documents and yeah. sort through them. And I remember that of your uh, the show that you recommended on uh, during the holiday break, Slow Horses. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, yeah. Well, they're, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or um, but there they're effective great spies. Robert Smigel, there was that great Robert Smigel SNL cartoon, The Ex-Presidents. You know, they're all super, they're all, they're all, they're superheroes. <laughs> they go around fighting Dr. Evil. Ours would all um, be on Lark scooters yeah. chasing that each other. They were all wearing ties. Being a former president means never having to put on a tie again. Now, back then, back then, when that cartoon was made, they were still wearing ties. The, the, I would say, by the way, I would say, it just pops into my head. The end of the tie of the wearing of the tie is a gigantic sartorial cultural moment in the United. No, people have simply not reconciled, have not have. dealt with. I have. I've embraced it fully. We all look like a. I'm not saying you haven't officials. embraced it. I'm saying we haven't. What does it mean that for you know two centuries, 
men in the West had to wear some kind of neck wear and they don't have to anymore. I don't know what it means, but it's it's interesting. Well, when the high heels high heels go in the stockings for women, then I'll say we're truly liberated. But, you know, there's the expectation for dresses. The standards are still pretty stringent for women in those roles. Well, you know, that's, you know, we we men are, are brainwashing and hypnotizing you into having to wear high <laughs> heels and stockings um in order to cripple you like that's like, right to slow uh, us like down foot wrapping Gacious. To slow, so you don't so you don't have to so you won't uh, to eat our lunch uh i read that in naomi wolf's the beauty myth 33 years ago um a book that should have revealed to everybody how psychotic she was back then but for some reason was nonetheless pleasing in its ideological coloration to too many people and made her famous and I haven't heard much from her lately. Um, wasn't oh. she? Weren't aliens making she, the vaccine? She, was, she went full conspiratorial there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think. But she also believes in alien. I think aliens are. There's also aliens. Anyway, boy, this has uh, gone far afield. So we will. Uh, <laughs> we'll, so has we'll Naomi back. Wolf. Sadly for Naomi. Yes, yes. It's sadly or not sadly. Maybe it's it's you know. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.